0: So when Jesus came, and first his forerunner, who was his cousin, a man named John, went out into the wilderness and really got everybody thinking about God in a fresh way. You know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people's hearts, you know, were beginning to really consider God afresh after four plus decades of relative silence from the Lord. Jesus then came onto the scene. Uh, He was baptized, he was then tempted, but then he began to work miracles and then also teach the crowds of people. And his most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, which it seems he gave in lots of different settings. And some have actually called the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of the Father. Because in that teaching, Jesus introduced uh, what was for them radical concept about God. That the holy God of the Old Testament, the one that they built first a tabernacle for and then a temple for, the one that when Moses went to the mountaintop engraved on stones the Ten Commandments for them, the one that gave them the laws and the ordinances for the people, the one who spoke to Abraham, the one who brought the flood upon the Noahic earth, that that God, Jesus said, is your Father in heaven. It was a radical idea. Jesus would say things in that sermon like, when you you treat others well, when you you know are generous to others or when you pray to God when you cry out to God when you're spending time alone with him in prayer or when you deny yourself fleshly appetites you fast in doing those things he said your father who sees in secret will reward you openly it was it was a wild concept that 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 God is our father in heaven he he would say things like And your father, you know, as you're praying and bringing your needs to him, your father who knows everything that you need before you ask, he'll take care of you. So pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or he would give a way of contrast and he would say, you know, you need to go to God and you should talk to him. You should ask of him. You should seek him. You should knock. It should just be a perpetual part of your life because He wants to help you. He wants to take care of you. He says, for which of you earthly parents, when your child asks, you wouldn't take care of them. You know what they need. You want to take care of them. Your father knows what you need. So ask of your father and he will give generously to those who ask. All of these statements from Jesus were news to the people of Israel who were cruising around at that time. You know, that God could be my father, that God could be your father, to think of God in that fatherly kind of way. It was new for them, but but here's the thing I wanted to say to you today in introducing this chapter. I think it needs to be renewed for us. And the reason I think it needs to be renewed for us is because what, what they would have struggled with was, how could a God that's so holy, transcendent, awesome, powerful, incredible, and pure, how could he be my father. Whereas for us in our generation, we think, how couldn't he be my father? We might go back to the Old Testament and read of God's descriptions of himself and struggle with some of them. Listen to what God said when delivering the 10 commandments to the people of Israel. He said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6, he said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, when we read of a description like that of God, you you probably have experienced the temptation on even how to read those statements of God about himself. The way we want to read it is, here's God describing himself. I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love. And by implication, when we think of it that way, what we're saying is there are these beautiful, wonderful facets of who God is, and then there are these parts of God that I just don't like. There are these facets of Him that are less than glorious. But every attribute of God is perfect and beautiful and wonderful. And if we fixate on only a portion of who God is, do we really know who God is? We We want to know all of God. We want to know all of his holiness, all of his grandiosity. We want to know everything there is to know about the Lord. But this kind of concept, thinking about the holiness of God, or as Paul put it in Romans chapter 11, think of this phrase. Would you ever say it? He said, consider the kindness and severity of God. To think of God in that way, it sometimes grates against our modern mentality and mindset. I just so happened... Over the last couple of weeks, I've been just personally reading through a really good book. I highly recommend it. It's by J.I. Packer uh, called Knowing God. And it's a it's a it's a basically a theology of who God is, but written in a very uh, accessible kind of way. And he said this about, about what I'm talking about. He said, the certainty in our era, that there is no more to be said of God than that he is infinitely forbearing and kind. That certainty is as hard to eradicate as bindweed. And when once it has put down roots, Christianity, in the true sense of the word, simply dies off. For the substance of Christianity is faith in the forgiveness of sins through the redeeming work of Christ, on the cross. In other words, if all, God, if all God is, is not a father in heaven, but is a grandfather in heaven, a Santa Claus, so to speak, who no matter what we do, no matter what we say, he turns a blind eye to all of that. If that's who God is, then we've lost the gospel itself or the need for the gospel itself. Because the cross of Christ mandates that There is a humanity that is lost because of their sin. And Jesus' blood was the only way to pay the penalty for that sin so that we could be brought into close relationship and fellowship with the living God. So it might have been a new concept for them, but I hope a renewed concept for you and for me. And so what I want to show you today is that God's grace demands this drought that they went through. His love demanded justice. His holiness demanded judgment, and then lastly, his kingdom results in enemies, like we saw at the close of this chapter. Now, the whole scene of this story that we read, uh, like I said, it's a very Old Testament kind of story. It's dissimilar to so much of our modern experience, because what what happens is the people of Israel at that time, they're, they're God's people. There's no church at the time that we've read this. We're in the Old Testament era. And so God had made a covenant with the people of Israel that when they walked with him uh, and you know nationally kept the Sabbaths and worshipped him, and they were doing well spiritually, and the cancer of idolatry or uh you know rebellion was not present in them, when they were clean before God generally, God would give them outward signs of his grace and favor upon their lives. So they'd get rain, uh, they'd have great crops, all of that. And so the idea was, God told them in the law, he said, look, when you enter into cancerous disobedience, then the heavens are going to become bronze for you. The earth is going to become dust. It's not going to yield crops any longer. And so here's David under that covenant for the people of Israel. And he notices this famine. It lasts for one year. Then it lasts for two years. And then after the third year, David seeks the face of the Lord. Is there? Let me ask you, has there ever been something that's unfolded in your life? Maybe it's one year, two years, three years, one month, two months, three months, one day, two days, three days. But there comes a point where you're like, well, I better pray about this. And that's what happened to David. He, he goes and he seeks the face of the Lord. I want to find out what's going on here. Why is this dryness in the land? And when he inquires of the Lord, we read this in the passage God announces to him, it doesn't say how, perhaps through a prophet or the Urim and Thummim, as we've talked about in a previous teaching, but in some way, God confirms to him, it's because there is blood guilt on the house of Saul for what he did to the Gibeonites. All right. Now, most of us at this point are going, okay, I have no idea. You've lost me at this point. What, what, What is happening here is that 500 years... Before this particular episode, God brought the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt uh, and brought them to the promised land. You guys remember this? Nod your heads if you remember this, because I'll just, I'll explain it for a long time. So just keep me moving, keep me moving. All right, so Moses led them out, but after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses died. Their next leader, Moses's assistant, took Moses' place, he was a man named Joshua, and they went into the promised land. And God had decreed that the people in that promised land, within that, those geographical boundaries, God had, through their abhorrent sins that were a stain upon all of humanity at that time, God had made the determination that he would mark them out for judgment. And so God told Joshua and the people of Israel, when you go in there, you're not to mess around. It's, you're not to show any mercy. I'm going to demonstrate for humanity a bit of what my judgment looks like eternally in the present day. I think that's part of what was happening there. But also in doing that, he gave those nations plenty of time to repent. And there were some individuals who did, but by and large, many remained hard-hearted and they continued to rebel against the Lord. Anyways. One of the things God told the people of Israel was that when you go in, you're not to make any peace treaties with the people that live inside of the land, although you can make peace treaties with the people who are outside of those boundaries, outside of those borders. So they went in. The Gibeonite people lived inside of Israel. They were some of those people marked out for God's judgment, but they conceived a plan. Here's what they did. They sent some of their leaders to Joshua, but they dressed up their leaders in clothes that looked really old, sandals that were broken and looked like they'd been traveling for hundreds, if not thousands of miles. And they had in their coolers uh, all this old and nasty food that was all moldy and broken and dry. And then they came to Joshua and the leaders and they said, we've come from a far and distant land. We want to make peace with you. You know, we heard that you can make peace treaties with people that are outside of the land. Will you make a peace treaty with us? And Joshua and his men, his leaders, they said, Oh, yeah, sure. You know, they looked at their sandals, their clothes, and they're like, these people are from really far away. And they made a treaty with them. Then three days later, all of Israel began to discover that these Gibeonites were actually from close by rather than from far away. And the people began to murmur against Joshua and the other leaders who had made that decision because In making the decision, they had not consulted with the Lord, it says in Joshua chapter 9. But I want you to listen to what the leaders said in response to the people. This comes from Joshua chapter 9, verse 19 and 21. It says, but all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This this we will do to them. Let them live, lest... Wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. Now, one, one of the things that the kings in Israel were supposed to do when they became king is they were supposed to write a copy of the Bible for themselves by hand. So when Saul became king, he would have understood as he went through scripture, he would have understood the Gibeonite people 500 years earlier, they are under the protection of God and and, and, and the leaders of whom I am an extension. We are not to mess with these people. We are to let them live. We are to let them thrive lest the wrath of God come upon us. So David, he goes to the Lord. He says, God, what's going on? Why is this drought happening? Why, why are we not seeing any good crops come and all of that? And God says, well, because you have a historical sin that you've committed. Saul committed it, his house committed it, and you need to deal with it before I bring the rain upon the nation. So let me just, with that kind of background, let me just say these four things to you. Number one, God's grace demanded this drought. Number one, God's grace demanded this drought. Like I said, God had already said this to them in the law, you walk away from me, you do things like this, it's going to bring, you know, famine upon the land. And the kings, the leaders, they were especially held accountable for these actions. But you see, to me, this is the grace of God in not only pointing out the reason for the drought, but giving the drought in the first place. You see, it would not be loving and kind and gracious of God to allow his people to persist in a cancerous rebellion against himself, yet bless them. No, this dryness, which came on them for a time, it was like a cool little radar system for the people of Israel to realize, man, something is off. What is off? What needs to be corrected in us so that those times of blessing can return in our lives? Look, this is good for us to ask from time to time, in our own lives as well. I want you to think with me to a time future from this in the book of Second Samuel into the Gospels. And I want you to think with me about the time that Jesus walked on the Earth, and there was this time where the people of Israel were celebrating what is called the Feast of Tabernacles. I realize we're doing some super Old Testament stuff this morning, but this is what it's all about. This is scr- scripture. And during this feast, it was about a week long, what they were celebrating was the time that God was faithful to them as they wandered in the wilderness. So they would do all kinds of cool stuff. They would like build tents on the top of their roofs, and families would leave their homes, and they would go camping on their roof of their house, or sometimes even out in the wilderness. And, and all the kids would say, like, why, why are we camping right now? What's going on? And they would talk about, well, our ancestors, there was a time where they wandered in the wilderness, and God provided for them. And, and they had all these symbols to demonstrate uh, the manna from heaven, or uh, the quail that God gave to them, or the water from the rock, or the water that was bitter that God made sweet. They had all these ways to commemorate God's previous faithfulness to them. And on the last day of the feast, they would take a pitcher filled with water from the pool of Siloam, and they would bring it into the house of the Lord, and they would pour this water out as a libation offering to God. It was a way for them to remember and commemorate, God, you quenched our thirst. You know, in the past, we were thirsty and you quenched our thirst. Well, John tells us that one of those, during one of those feasts, when they gave that offering on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, what Jesus was doing was giving to humanity a little diagnostic, a little test, a little question to ask. Am I thirsty? Am I dry? Am I parched? Is there something missing from my life? You might remember that Jesus said a very similar thing to the woman at the well in Samaria, a woman who had been married to five men previously and was living with a sixth man currently. Obviously, she was trying to quench her thirst in a very specific way. And Jesus said the same kind of thing to her. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. You will never thirst again. But the question, are you thirsty? David looked around at the land and he realized, man, this dryness, is because there's something that's amiss in our nation. And that dryness, to me, flows from the grace of God. This is His grace to allow His people the courteous dryness that would cause us to snap back into full relationship with Him. All right, now number two. I wanted to say this as well. God's love demanded this justice. God's love demanded this justice. And, and what, what I mean by this is, is real simple. You know, we think about, as we read the story, we're, we're thinking about David, we think about Saul, we think about Saul's descendants, and we'll deal with them in a moment. But you know who God was thinking about in this story? He was thinking about the Gibeonites. He was thinking about this people group that for 500 years had maintained a distinction from everyone else in Israel And he was thinking about how his people had made a covenant with them, that they'd be kind to them, that they'd allow them to live there, that they'd be at peace with them. And he remembered that. As you're reading this story, you should not, I don't think, think of the Gibeonite people as a bloodthirsty group that just can't wait for revenge. Part of the reason I don't think you should think that way is because they did not come to David. There was a drought. David sought the face of the Lord, and God showed David what was wrong. When David went to them, they said, we don't want any money. They said, it's not our place to execute capital punishment. And when they finally did speak up, suggesting that seven descendants of Saul substitute their lives for the betterment of the nation and surrender to capital punishment, to satisfy the holiness and the wrath of God. When they suggested that, it reads like a people who are saying, look, if you're saying that God is saying that all of this is because of what Saul and his family had done, then perhaps we need to put them before the Lord to see if God's anger will abate if we give these men up to die. They seem reluctant to go through this whole process but what I want you to see is that God loved these foreigners. He cared for them, and his love for them demanded some justice on their behalf. The people of Israel, they should have known this. Over and over again throughout the law, God made it very clear. I love the foreigner. You know, for one, he had a simple thing where he said to the people of Israel, look, when you partake of the Sabbath, Uh, everybody gets that day off. From sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, everyone gets that day off. Every Israelite, but also every foreigner in your midst. So you can't, you know, hire a bunch of people from out of town and then say, well, hey, I've got the Sabbath day restriction, so I get to kick it on this day, but you have to go to work. No, he said they get to partake of the Sabbath as well. He also, in places like Leviticus chapter 23, announced that the people of Israel, when they harvested their crops, uh, had to do this thing where they went through the crop one time and they left the gleanings for those who were poor and those who were from out of town, those who were foreigners to be able to go in afterwards and get sort of that second Uh, the second pickings of the crop. And not only that, but the farmers could not harvest the corners of their uh, fields. And they had to leave them for people like the foreigner who lived in their midst. Every three years, listen to this, every three years, the people of Israel not only gave their regular tithe, but then a second tithe every three years. And that second tithe, what it was designed for, was to give to the Levites who lived locally in their midst, And also widows, fatherless, and foreigners who were living in their midst. The foreigners were invited in Numbers chapter 9 to partake in the sacrificial system. And God described himself this way in Deuteronomy 10 verse 18. He said, I execute justice for the fatherless and the widow, and I love the sojourner. And I give him food and clothing. And the reason that God did this for the people of Israel and tried to give them this attitude is very simple. He said in Deuteronomy 24 verse 18, he said, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. He wanted them to remember they used to be enslaved. They used to be a people that lived inside, were encompassed by the people of Egypt. And they're to remember that they needed to extend grace and mercy to these people living in their midst. And so part of the reason that all of this came upon them, it was God's love for the Gibeonite people that demanded this justice for their lives. But number three, what I want you to see is that God's holiness demanded this judgment. God's holiness demanded this judgment. Now, if you're anything like me when you first read through the story, you know you kind of said, wow you know these these uh the, the male offspring of saul that's that's rough, you know, and you shouldn't have in your mind that these were little boys that were being sacrificed before the Lord these were full full grown men who were experiencing capital punishment for a crime that had been committed. It's very possible, if not probable, that all of these men." We were actively involved in the slaying of Gibeonite people. The, the reason that we might say that is because Saul had a reign that was 40 years long. And during his reign, we know, like, when, for instance, when he died, which we talked about earlier, when he died, he died along with three of his adult, full-grown sons who were also with him in battle. David, when he goes out to battle, brings his nephews and brothers, family members into the war, and even eventually his own sons. You have guys like Absalom who are full grown, able to fend for themselves. So it's not unreasonable at all when you see phrases like Saul and his house to conclude that Saul was guilty, but so were his sons. It's hard to imagine Saul by himself going to Gibeah with his sword in his hand, and and exercising his own will, he actually probably conspired with his family to do this thing. It says in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, the fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So knowing that about God, it seems that God, as he looked at Saul, also saw this same sin inside of Saul's sons, that they were guilty of this crime as well. We can't know it with certainty, but just reading between the lines, it is possible, if not probable, that they had their own blood guilt right along there with Saul. And as they were on their way to the gallows, so to speak, they would have had time to ask the question, why? What has been done? they would have had the time to repent of their sin. They would have had time to set their household, so to speak, in order before the living God, before their physical breath was taken from them and they entered into the breath of eternity, which, by the way, is of much longer substance than the short little period of time that we have here on earth. So these men went and died for the sin of Saul, and perhaps even for their own crime as well. Now, like I said, this is a facet of God that is other than what we normally like to talk about. It's easy to talk about the love of God and the grace of God. Uh, There's a reason why songs about the grace of God are really popular and songs about the wrath of God, not as much, but... We do not want to live, I don't, think, I don't think anybody would want to live with an all-powerful, eternal God who allows evil to exist eternally. You want to be with a God who is willing to deal with all evil that it might not have a chance to rear its ugly head again. When Moses... Asked God, can I see you? God told him, Go in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you up. You can't see all of me. You just couldn't handle it, but I'll walk by. And after I pass by, you'll see an afterglow of my glory and I'll declare my name to you. And as God passed by, he said to Moses, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what I am proposing to you this morning is that it is a beautiful part of God that he by no means clears the guilty. That all of us in the sight of God have fallen short of the glory of God. That the guilt that we have, the sin that we have, it separated us eternally from God because this is the thing that causes us to celebrate Jesus. That Jesus came to die for our sin, to bridge that gap, to be righteousness for us. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to become sin for us. Now, that doesn't mean that he became sinful. It means that the very thing that was evil and wicked, that God hated, that was killing humanity, Jesus became that. He appropriated that into himself so that we who believe, Paul goes on, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin so that we might become righteousness. Now, like I said, Jesus didn't become sin by becoming sinful. And I'm sure there's plenty of folks that you know that you would say, well, they became righteous, but they didn't really become righteous. All right, and I'm sure you've looked into your own heart and you say, I have not yet fully attained to the righteousness I desire, but praise God, by the blood of Jesus, I have gained the righteousness of God. He's deposited it into my account. It is good that God by no means clears the guilty. It is wonderful that God deals with humanity in this way. Not only is it good, but I also wanted to simply say this, there is hope in the midst of all of this. Because God says it this way, like I read to you out of Exodus chapter 20 when he talked about the Ten Commandments, he said, I do this to the third and fourth generation of, quote, those who hate me. Those who hate me. But you see, those who recognize Christ, you can transfer from that category to the category that says, but, I, but now I love you. I used to be blind, but now I see. I used to hate you, but now I love you. I, I used to be in the darkness, but now I'm in the light. We can have that transfer and come into the beautiful family of God. Like Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who am living, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He felt, he felt his old man so completely dealt with by Jesus upon the cross that it was no longer him living, but Christ living in him. So again, The holiness of God demanding this judgment. All right now, lastly, number four, let me say it this way. Number four, God's kingdom results in enemies. God's kingdom results in enemies. This is it's kind of an attachment to the chapter, these four different giants that come out and try to attack David and his men, and they win these four different victories. They're all monsters, so to speak. You know, they're descendants of Goliath, And now a generation later, they rear their ugly head and they're doing their thing. And they're attacking David and attacking really, in a sense, God's kingdom. And, you know, as you think about this, you might see an image for sin itself or the enemy himself trying to slow us down in our Christian life and progress. So I don't have a whole lot to say about this, but let me just read to you from a little thing that I wrote in my journal years ago about this particular passage. You know, just kind of reading through Second Samuel. Got to chapter 21, and I read of these four, you know, freaky giants. You know, six fingers, six toes, you know, just these huge guys. And all these victories that David and his men won. The phrase that's repeated, by the way, in verse... 15 and 18 and 19 and 20 is there was war again or there was again war just keeps happening you know just there like every time they get a little bit of peace it's like and then there was again war it happened again just over and over kind of thing and the thing that I wrote was just real simple it said the enemy keeps coming he keeps morphing he wants to take us out Goliath was beaten but his family keeps coming Different forms, inventive, creative. And my simple prayer, just kind of thinking about our church family, was stand with us, oh God. Because I know that every single week that goes by, you know, as we go out, you know, on Sunday, we leave this church, we go out into our Monday through Saturday, the enemy is inventive and creative and morphing and wanting to take you and take me out. There is war again. Monday morning, that alarm clock goes off, and it's like, man, it's not church day. It's not hallelujah singing to Jesus day. It's Monday. And the enemy takes a, a, a different shape trying to defeat and destroy our lives. We must cry out to the Lord, say, God, would you help me? Would you strengthen me? Okay, so with a passage like this, what do we do? How do we apply it? How do we bring it home? I said, consider the kindness and severity of God. So could you just think about that. I think one response would simply be this. People need to know about Jesus. People need to know about Jesus because God is the eternal judge and he will judge all of humanity. So people need to know about Jesus right now. (laughs) Right now, well, there's still time. People need to know about Jesus. I think another response would just simply be, Lord, search my heart. You know, is there some attitude of unholiness that I've let persist something of rebellion that I've just kind of engaged in that is bringing dryness into my life. You know, search my heart, oh God, you know, and and to really go before the Lord in that kind of way. And then perhaps there might be another part of this where we would say, Lord, is there anyone that you love that I have kind of had a terrible attitude about. That you are wanting to have corrected in my heart because the way that I've treated them, the way that i behave behaved towards them, like Saul to the Gibeonites, it, it has not been what it should be. And it has misrepresented your heart. And to maybe ask that question before, before the Lord. I'm sure there's a thousand different ways that we could see some application of this in our own lives, but those are three for you to consider. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.